So today's reading comes from Micah 7, starting in verse 8 and going to the end. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets, a day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. I have no doubt that you're familiar with the story of Noah. It's an ancient story, but Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. The biblical account says that he walked with God. This was in stark contrast to the world around him. In Noah's day, much like our day, the earth was corrupt. It was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Here's how Genesis 7 describes it. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them from the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. For behold, I will bring a great flood of many waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then there's a pivot point. He says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, 
you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And so the rain starts to fall and the fountaining earth gives way to a worldwide flood. And after weeks of rain and constant flooding, his family and the animals that were with him come back onto dry ground. And Noah offers up thanks and worship to the Lord of, for bringing this salvation about. And the Lord responds to Noah with this, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall you be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So I want us to consider briefly the flood as a segue into our sermon today. The flood of Noah's day was a judgment, a severe discipline, but it was not final because a remnant remained. Noah and his family were preserved and they were given the responsibility like the first humans to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, to continue God's good design to care and to cultivate, to provide and protect, to lead and to love. But when you fast forward more than a thousand years to the time of Micah's day, things do not appear to be any better, right? Our text this morning is from Micah 7, 8 through 20, which immediately follows the text that Matthew taught on last week, wherein we learned about the fate of that people. The godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They lie in wait for blood and each hunts each other with a net. That is the state of affairs in Noah's day. That's the state of affairs in Micah's day. And I wonder if you would agree that that sounds like the state of affairs today. Our text delivers us a timely word though, a message of justice and mercy, of hope and security for those who are united in Christ. The four stanzas or distinct paragraphs found in Micah 7, 8 through 20 teaches us this idea. In a world under judgment, our steadfast hope is in a faithful shepherding Savior. This morning, I'm grateful that we serve a personal God, a God who is invested in this world that he's created. He knows us, he cares for us, he guides and directs us. And if we're willing to listen to his word, he will give us this hope and assurance this morning that we can carry with us into no matter what kind of evil that, may, that we may see or experience in the world around us. We know the end because God has revealed it, and we know our God because he has given us himself. So let's pray. God, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and the confidence to walk in the light of your word each day, right here, right now. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our God, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So Matthew ended last week's sermon in verse 7, pointing to the exhortation to, do you guys remember, look wait and trust, and repeat. Uh, Micah continues to develop this concluding theme of trust in God in the first of four stanzas. So in verses 8 through 10, we see this, this main point, that humble faith confesses sin and wholly relies on the mercy of God. So look at verse 8 with me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. As good interpreters of scripture, though, we can't liberally claim and, and, and speak this over our lives. 
we, we would do right to understand the context here. Micah's words are given first to a people facing a terrible prophecy. The beautiful city, the home of the temple of the Lord would be destroyed. This people would be destroyed, but for a remnant. Abraham J. Heschel, a 20th century Jewish theologian comments, he says that Micah was the first prophet to predict the destruction of Jerusalem. It was in the days of Hezekiah that Micah expressed the dreadful words that the Lord is coming out of his place, that he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, that the mountains will melt before him and the valleys will be a cleft like wax before fire, like waters poured down a steep place. And this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain a house of wooded height. So as the northern kingdom of Israel would fall to an Assyrian invasion, so the southern kingdom of Judah years later would fall to Babylon. And despite the coming destruction and captivity, God's people could issue this warning, the shot across the bow, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. And there's a real confidence here, right? Something that's, you know, we almost admire, but we, we can't mistake what the confidence is in. You know, you think about the English word confidence or, or confianza in Spanish. In the original Latin would have been with faith. Confidence simply means with faith. So what is the source of this confidence? What is their faith in? And if you ask that of yourself, it's not to be in yourself. It's not a vague sense that things will get better or that this too shall pass or it's only a season. C.S. Lewis clearly depicts this kind of faith when one character describes the return of the kingly lion in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe saying, Aslan is on the move. Verse 8 continues, When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. When facing a political and military superpower who has the capacity and will to crush and uproot, God's people start to realize perhaps that a darkness is coming. As in a dungeon with no light, they sit in darkness. They will sit in darkness, but for the Lord. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light, they can say, in faith. The first readers would soon understand this darkness, their darkness, but I wonder, what is your darkness? The constancy of physical pain, seemingly ever-present relational and emotional scars, real struggles with depression, children that have walked away from the good news of Jesus, are these not our darkness? But in the midst of darkness, Micah does not conclude with hopelessness. He hopes, and he hopes rightly in God. The Lord will be a light to me. So in darkness, where do we turn for light? Where do we turn? Sadly, it often goes like this. If, if I had this amount of money, then you know, we'd be caught up on those medical bills that seem to be causing such a strain in our marriage. Or, or if I only had the wife or the husband or the child that I want, then I could experience the happy life. Or if only God would take away this particular struggle that I keep having again and again and again, then I could follow him the way that I want. 
And perhaps we look to these sorts of things to be the light in our darkness. Are these not a form of idolatry? False hopes, vain promises to ourselves that things will get better. There is a light, but the light is Jesus. The light is the Lord himself. Consider the Apostle John's account of the incarnation of Christ, the Son of God coming into the world. He says, He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. John then contrasts this work that Jesus does with his own work, his own ministry. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. We must not look to other things to be our light in darkness. We must look to God to be our light in darkness. So even in the deepest darkness, God, God's people have reason for hope, reason for hope in God himself. Verse 9 then introduces us to acceptance, the confession that wonderfully connects fallen sinners by faith to a holy God. Look at the first part of verse 9 with me and consider the humility of Israel's prayer. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Stop. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. I want to take a moment here and consider three important assertions that Micah makes. Assertion one, we are sinners. In our day, even many Christian churches have a hard time teaching the doctrine of sin. But the testimony of God's word and even our own experience bears witness that we are sinners, that we sin, that we fall short of the standard that God has set for us to do righteousness and justice toward our neighbors, to worship and serve our creator the Apostle Paul crystallizes this message in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Micah agrees, as we saw in verse 2, the godly have perished among the earth and there's no one who is upright among mankind. So we are sinners and fall short of God's standard for us. Assertion two would be that God is a righteous judge. You know, you ask this question, who is God? Well, God God's righteous and, and perfect in all his ways. His wrath is a holy, consuming fire. His indignation is just. And in the face of our sin, who can stand before him? Psalm 711 affirms that God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. And again, Psalm 77 verse 3, your way, O God, is holy. What God is like our God? So, so God is a, a righteous judge who feels this righteous, holy indignation for sin. And this makes, this makes and expresses the gravity of this third assertion that we see here in verse 9, that our sin is personal. Our missteps and our wrongdoing is not just against a standard or against nature. It's personal. And it doesn't say that our sin is first and foremost against ourselves or against other people. It says that it's against 
him, against him, against him, against the Lord have I sinned. This maybe makes us reflect on the same passage that Julia read from. Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, ring true. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and do what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Our sin is personal against the Lord. This is a terrifying reality. But, but I mentioned that there's a humility in this prayer from Israel why, why, why humility? Well, because it says there in verse 9 that I will bear. There's a confession. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. To understand the good news that there is a God who saves begins with an understanding that there is a God who we have sinned against, that you have sinned against. A God whose judgment we remain under if we are not saved. And so therefore, Micah's words reflect a, what a believing Israel can do in turning and accepting her sinfulness. And there is a turn. There's a pivot right here in verse 9, a point that distinguishes a believer from every other person on earth. And the word here in the English is translated until. So verse 9, it says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. Wait, you might think, God, we just said, we understand, is the righteous judge in the courtroom of life. Matthew's used that illustration throughout our time in Micah. Yes, he is the judge, but Micah depicts the judge embodying the role of the advocate here. The defense attorney, if you will, on our behalf. He becomes the one who pleads on Israel's behalf. And this imagery is most beautifully fulfilled in the Messiah when Jesus becomes our mediator Right? Because in the Old Testament, the role of the mediator, the go-between, was that of the priest, the representative of the people before God on account of their sin. And as the years went by, priests would come and go. But God promised in Psalm 110 that one day there would be a forever priest. And in Hebrews 7, we then learn, this makes Jesus the guarantor of the better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Micah says, God will execute judgment for me. But this is a hopeful thing. He will be brought to the light and he will see the vindication of the Lord. So what is the judgment that God executes? That God passes over our sin and places that sin on another, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what is this vindication? It's that God's mercy is revealed to his people and his wrath against his enemies His justice is vindicated. Perhaps you, like me, long for justice. Do you long for justice for the lives of the unborn, for innocent people who are killed with a gunshot, for the wrong done against you or done in your presence? There is a vindication coming. You can be sure of this. 
Romans 12, 19 affirms this, that vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So the Assyrian and Babylonian oppressors of Micah's day and the following generations will experience this vengeance and Israel will watch. And so will be the destruction for all evildoers who do not turn from their wickedness. Continuing in verse 10, then my enemy will see and shame will cover her head who said to me, where's the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her, and now she will be the one who is trampled like the mire of the streets. Let's get personal. We will either have a broken spirit acknowledging our own sin, or we will experience the crushing weight of God's judgment. Shame will cover us. We will, as mud in an old dirt street, be trampled underfoot. You know, Jesus describes himself as as a rock, as a cornerstone, saying in Luke 20 that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it it will crush him. And so we must ask ourselves, will we cast ourselves on the rock of our salvation? Will we confess that we're sinners, that we sin, that we have sinned, even this week, that we've sinned against our neighbor, our child, sister, brother, father? mother, coworker, friend? Will we confess? Because if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us, right? This confession, when, when you linger for a moment and you feel it, when you say out loud the sin that you've done and you feel the hurt that it is to your neighbor and the hurt that it is to your God whom you have sinned against, this, this confession propels us toward repentance, toward a genuine turning from sin and toward Jesus, to the wide open arms of God who is eager to show you mercy. Confession gives way to repentance in a way that leads us to God. And just as we've learned in this first section, he will plead your cause and will bring about justice for you. And that is a hopeful thing. So point number one, humble faith confesses sin and wholly relies on the mercy of God. And in this next section, we're going to see the repeated use of the word day, the day, that day. There's a coming time, a coming day when things will be very different than they are now, Micah says. So in verses 11 through 13, we will see the second point. The good news of salvation is offered to a world under judgment. Look at verse 11. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. And, and again, this is not a name it and claim it passage where we can interpret it as we see fit. It's not as if Micah's saying, you know, if life's got you down, look on the bright side. Think positive thoughts. Read a self-help book. You'll feel better physically. You'll, you'll feel better mentally. You'll be more successful and on and on and on. No, we are patient to remember that as we study God's word, there's a historical context that informs our proper interpretation. The walls that would be torn down and rebuilt, the boundary line that would be extended and finally restored, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the day, that day, the last day. One commentary helps to explain the last day is symbolically depicted by the restoration of Jerusalem's city walls and the extension of her boundaries of the land to the limits prophesied by Moses and enjoyed under David and Solomon. 
Throughout scripture, we see, we get a glimpse of where history is headed. Eschatology, or the study of end times, aims to better understand this. And while splitting hairs on the particulars in this passage may not be a primary issue to address, I think it is both wise and helpful to understand the progressive fulfillment of what is stated here. So as another commentary explains, this eschatological day was partially realized in Micah's own day when Jerusalem emerged into the light after the darkness of Assyrian invasion. It found a further fulfillment in the restoration from exile and finds its fullness, its fullest historical fulfillment today as the elect from all nations come to the sanctuary of the heavenly Jerusalem. And so as we continue in verse 12, this becomes a lot more clear. We see this final day coming into view. Look at verse 12 with me. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and from the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. So here, Micah draws on the furthest points known in his own geographical boundaries of his day. Assyria to the northeast, Egypt to the southwest. From sea to sea and mountain to mountain. What, what's he talking about? Well, Micah suggests that God's salvation is perhaps not just for ethnic Israel, but will be for persons from all nations and peoples and tribes and tongues. What a glorious anticipation of the gospel going forth as Jesus said in Acts 1, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Continuing in verse 13, But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. For those who are not in Christ, they will reap a harvest, just like those who are in Christ. But their harvest is different because Jesus was, the, was not the one who planted these seeds. Instead, they planted these seeds and they will reap their due reward. The harvest that they have sown, the fruit of their evil is desolation upon the earth. So we see that point number two, the good news of salvation is offered to the world, but the world is under judgment. And this salvation is not just about avoiding desolation, this is about being with the good shepherd, our shepherding God. And so in this next section, this next stanza, verses 14 through 17, we see this amazing thing that we will enjoy safe pasture under God's shepherding care, or we will despair under judgment. Micah's plea before the Lord is clear, using the word shepherd as a verb. Look at, look at verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. If you've read much of the Bible, you probably know that references to God's people as sheep are a common occurrence. As much of the Hebrew scriptures were written to people living in agrarian societies, and such illustrations were quite vivid. And Micah's petition here is that God would not only take on the role of the advocate or the merciful judge, but that he would shepherd his people. 
So the shepherd's responsibilities were simply to protect and to provide for the sheep. Shepherds would, would guide the sheep to good pasture, good pasture land for grazing, and, and with a wooden staff perhaps would, would fin off surrounding predators who would try to attack the flock. One might quickly be drawn to David's prayer in Psalm 23, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David experienced these things firsthand as a shepherd himself, fending off wild beasts and leading his sheep to safe and sure pastures. And he sees God much the same way. As we are like sheep, so God is our shepherd. And when the Lord is our shepherd, we will be safe and secure. He is the ultimate provider and protector of his flock, his people. Micah's description here is that of a garden-like forest, a refuge, a good place. This garden land would be as plentiful as Bashan and Gilead, recalling Israel's heritage from their early history coming into the land of promise. One might even consider the story arc, the poetic, redemptive story arc of what God does, beginning with the first humans, with God in Eden, a garden land, and here ending with the redeemed, the flock of his inheritance, living with God in a garden-like forest. And if we read prophecy literature too quickly, we might miss this. The voice changes between verses 14 and 15. While Micah and the people of Israel are personified praying this prayer to God, now in verse 15, God responds. Look at 15 with me. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. In a recent sermon, Matthew referred to the great Exodus, how this most incredible story in Israel's history is what is proof of God's saving power on behalf of his people, this deliverance from Egyptian slavery. And do you remember how he led them out? It was with signs and wonders. And Moses reminds the people in Deuteronomy 26 that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror with signs and wonders. And here he says, as in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. So as he did then, so he will again show his people marvelous things. Once more, he will deliver his people. So what kind of marvelous things are in view here? Throwing off the Assyrians and the Babylonians? Yes, in part. Returning to and restoring Jerusalem? Yes, in part. But something more, something greater than Egyptian deliverance is not just Assyrian or Babylonian deliverance. It's deliverance from the great enemy, the serpent from Genesis 3. It's deliverance from the curse. It's deliverance from sin and death and the devil. You know, the Apostle Peter's sermon at Pentecost gloriously points to this salvation because Jesus was delivered unto death so we can be delivered from death. Peter preached, Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The Messiah came, Jesus came to inaugurate this forever kingdom. And now we await its final consummation at his second coming. So God's people have a glorious hope for all of our lives. But what of the nations of the earth? For now they're raging. As is depicted in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? The psalmist writes. And the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst our bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And how does God respond to such opposition from the nations? Well, continuing in Psalm 2, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. And now Micah's voice comes back here in verse 16, and it's so powerful. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, and their ears shall be deaf And they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord their God, our God, and they shall be in fear of you. We see evil in the nations, do we not? When a dictator invades a country with no regard for lives and homes, displacing families and destroying property— when an entire ethnic or racial group is subjected to the exploitation of forced labor and slavery, when 63 million babies have lost their lives and national leaders unthinkably declare abortion as sacred. Today, there are hard battles being fought in all of these places and more to see God's righteousness and justice prevail. Some battles are won, others are lost but we know who wins the war. On the last day, that day, the day, the nations will see King Jesus and be put to shame. Their vain strength will be shown to be a weakness. They shall cover their mouths and be silent and speak no more. They shall cover their ears and be deaf. They shall be trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread before the Lord. They will be in fearful terror of the Lord. And do you remember in Genesis 3, God's curse of the deceiver in the garden? Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And what does the prophet say here of the nations and of the peoples that have rejected the Lord and his anointed? They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. So we see here in point three that we will enjoy safe pasture under God's shepherding care or we will despair under judgment. So if you're in Christ, you long for this day. No doubt you long for this day. But for his enemies, 
This is a just vindication of God. A just vindication of God. But what is the result for his people? Let's look at the last section. And our last point, that God will preserve a remnant to enjoy his delight in showing us faithful love. Look at verse 18 through the end. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from of old. Micah's name literally means who is like the Lord. And with that question, he leads us in a chorus of worship to the Lord. So consider all of the ways that he reveals his glory by pardoning and passing over and not retaining his anger forever, by delighting in steadfast love, by showing us compassion, by treading our iniquities underfoot, by casting all our sins into the depths of the sea, in showing us faithfulness, in showing us steadfast love, in fulfilling his covenant promises from the days of old. The glory of the Lord is revealed in this question, who is a God like you? All of these spiritual blessings are ours in Christ. This is for a particular people, God's people. What Micah refers to as a remnant, those he preserves. And it's not just for ethnic Israel. Paul makes that clear in Galatians 3. Know then that those who are of faith, who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that is those who are ethnically not Jewish, by faith he would justify them and preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed alongside Abraham, the man of faith. So through faith in Christ, we get to be a part of that remnant. We get to be a part of that remnant that is richly blessed. Perhaps this poem from 1923 helps describe what these blessings are, and I think with such joy. Pardon for sin and peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. We are the blessed ones. We are the remnant. We get to experience the delight of the Lord in showing us his steadfast love and faithfulness. It is our joy And here we see it's God's delight. It's his great pleasure. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This concluding message from Micah proves to be both a serious warning and a precious promise. That in a world under judgment, our steadfast hope is in the faithful 
shepherding savior. You know what Noah did after the deliverance from the flood? Genesis 9 says, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. The gardens that we cultivate in this life will continue to be marked by thorns and thistles, weeds and unwanted hardships. There's evil inside and all around us, but the tender care of a shepherding Savior will lead us through these days until we reach that day, the day, the day when we see the vindication of the Lord and enjoy the garden-like forest that he has prepared for us as our shepherding Savior. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would humble us wherever we are this morning. Um, I pray that you would help us to confess our sin, that we are sinners, that we have sinned and we sin against you. I pray that you'd help us to see the evil of this generation and rely wholly on your mercy to save us. I thank you that in your glorious plan, you delight to be our light and darkness, that when we fall, we shall rise with Christ. Thank you for the beautiful promises to provide and protect, to lead and to love us. Thank you that although we often fail to be faithful, you are always faithful. We delight in your steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. Amen.